baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the morning briefing here on Intercom Radio's ConnectingBets.com. Connecting Bets every day. Super producer Jake Hughes here sitting in the driver's seat because host Eric Dame is doing some fantastic work down in Florida this week. So for Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, you're stuck with me all by my lonesome. Aw, ain't you lucky. Anyway, on today's show, we have got a fantastic one for you. We're going to be speaking with two ladies from the Washington, D.C. VA Medical Center to talk about what the VA can do for you and what they're doing here in our nation's capital to help make veterans as comfortable as possible and provide them with some excellent health care. And also, later on in the show, we'll be speaking with Steph Mullen of IAVA to talk about what their organization is doing to help veterans. So lots of really cool stuff, so let's go ahead and get started. But before we do, I'm going to suggest that you check out the website, ConnectingVets.com, your one-stop shop for all things veteran and military-related. And also, make sure you follow us on social media. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us to get the latest and greatest information. You'll know exactly when things pop off in the veteran sphere, because we stay on top of that stuff, because we are the veteran community. Everyone here at ConnectingVets.com knows what it's like to take that uniform off for the last time, except for our National Guards woman, but she's okay too. <laughs> so we know what it is you care about because we care about the same thing, so we stay on top of that stuff. So make sure you follow us on all the big social media platforms to make sure you stay as awesome as you can possibly be. So... Lots of cool stuff going on here on ConnectingVets.com. Let's take a look at the news stories. Here's one from our own Matt Saintsing. Brother recovered from Vietnam decades after going missing. If my computer will work, we'll click on this story and talk about what it's about. <clears throat> uh, for nearly 52 years, the fate of Navy Commander James B. Mills was shrouded in mystery. With her brother missing from Vietnam, Anne Mills Griffiths had the credentialed had a credential no one wants to be a voting member of the National League of POW MIA Families. We've actually interviewed here her on the morning briefing. She's a fascinating woman with a fascinating story. I remember that she had lost her brother when she was very, very young. I believe in, uh, let's see the story here, 1966 is when he went missing. He went, uh, his aircraft was uh, shot down over Vietnam. But it appears that last month, uh, received she received astonishing news that her brother had been recovered and uh, was his identified were his remains were identified by the Department of Defense. So Friday, September 21st marks not only the 52nd anniversary of Commander Mills's aircraft disappearing, it is also fittingly National POW MIA Recovery Day, Recognition Day rather, not Recovery Day. What's wrong with me? Uh, she tells Connecting Vets, I registered total shock. What I actually said, I can't say in print, but it equated to, are you kidding me? Uh, the agency had attempted to recover her brother more than a dozen times before they came across the aircraft's cockpit in the South China Sea in 2006. 
So this just goes to show that there's a that there's still. I'm gonna look that up real quick. Let's see how many are still missing from Vietnam. Hang on. How many POW MIA from Vietnam? Uh, hang on, looking it up, looking it up. Computer's moving slow. So according to this, I'm not sure if this is accurate. Granted, this is from Wikipedia, so cut me some slack, Jack. But uh, according to this, 2,500 Americans are listed as prisoners of war missing in action, but only uh, 1,200 Americans were reported to have been killed in action with no body recovered. Many of these airmen, many of these were airmen who were shot down over North Vietnam or Laos. So I don't know if that's right. Hang on. I'm, I'm going to continue Googling this. I'm doing live reporting for you. Okay, POWMIA numbers. Okay, yeah, this sounds this sounds better. Two thousand six hundred and forty six Americans unaccounted for, including thirteen fifty prisoners of war missing in action, and roughly twelve hundred reported killed in action and body not recovered. So, it just goes to show that there are still so many people out there missing, and it's important to remember that while there are more missing from the Korean War, about seven thousand six hundred and eighty. And of course, the big news item of the day or of the times is that uh, our relations with North Korea are improving somewhat. So we're getting a whole bunch of new uh, remains from them. But it, uh, it well, it's important not to forget the other wars. You see, fifteen hundred from Vietnam, uh, forty-seven thousand from World War Two, and uh, or no, no, I'm sorry, sixty-seven thousand, sixty-eight thousand. That's uh, Europe and um, Asia, Indo-Pacific combined. So, it, but they're still finding people even today in Vietnam and Laos and the surrounding countries. So, it's important to remember that these people are still missing and they are slowly being accounted for. It's a very slow process, of course, but it is happening. Let's move on to something a little happier. Uh, we all know what uh, honor flights are. This is when uh, a state or an organization will take veterans from a specific place and fly them to here in Washington, D.C. to visit all the uh, memorials here in the nation's capital. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, according to the Department of Veteran Affairs, um, 11% of U.S. military veterans will be women in a couple of years. And that's 11% that's not always recognized by history. Especially because when you look at, when you think of like the wars and the history of our nation's battles and whatnot, it's easy to remember the, what I call the quote unquote sexy stuff, the, the not sexy, the, the tragic stuff, like the, the men, the boys over there fighting in World War II and World War One and Korea and Vietnam and all these places before uh, combat forces were integrated. But it's important to remember that there were still women serving in official capacities during these conflicts. And so it's important to remember them. And Patriotic Productions, a nonprofit veterans organization in Omaha, Nebraska, has sent over 3,500 veterans to see their memorials in the nation's capital. But they have a flight coming up. They're calling Nebraska Female Veterans Flight. This will include, uh, let's see, how many is this going? Um, uh, uh, it's not saying how many people are going over there, but... Uh, 
but include heroines from the heartland that fought overseas to defend the red, white, and blue. That's, oh, how patriotic. Or how poetic, rather. And uh, the, it's just what it sounds like. They'll be flown here for 10 days so they can see all the nation's capital, you know, all the memorials we have here. And they're from all different conflicts. There's one from, there's a couple from Vietnam era, one from the Desert Storm era. And uh, they leave on uh, Monday. They leave today. They left at 4 a.m., which, you know, with the time difference, they may have just left. But they're coming here to see our nation's capital, see all the monuments and stuff. And that's really cool because, again, it's easy. I mean, as sad as it sounds, it's easy to forget female veterans because for the longest time in our nation's history, they haven't been doing the uh, the big flashy stuff. They haven't been doing the actual combat. But now that forces are more integrated, you're seeing more and more female combat veterans. But even back then, they were still serving just in the rear or as nurses or things like that. So it's very cool to see them uh, offering recognition to these female veterans. Let's look at something else. Here we go. This is coming out of, where is this coming out of? Uh, Cedar Falls. What? Okay, hang on. My computer just shut down. My computer just shut down. Great. Okay. So you know what we're going to do? Um, start windows normally. I guess we'll just uh, plug the website, connectingvets.com. <laughs> this is one of those things that can only happen in radio. You know, I'm sitting here doing my thing, recording the show, and all of a sudden the computer just shuts down for no reason whatsoever. So you're going to have to give me a few minutes while it restarts. But it's important to remember that if you... That uh, morning briefing here, I'll remind you, airs every day or every weekday from 8.15 to, see, 8.15, 8.45, 9 9.45, every single weekday. I had to do quick math in my head, and I suck at math, so you'll have to forgive me. But uh, we are always staying on top of these current issues. We do our best to bring you the fantastic interviews from people making waves in the veteran community. And I'm going to see if I can get our own Phil Briggs to come in here. He's out there looking around. I'm going to see if I can get him to look this way. No, he's not looking. The people on Facebook can see me waving. All right, so as we said, the computer just randomly shut down and is not coming back on the air. So I've had to improvise, and by improvise, I mean I've had to... Invite someone in that I dearly hope not to, because I don't enjoy talking to too much. <laughs> Our own uh, podcast guru and ace reporter, Phil Philbert Bird Dog Briggs. You have so many nicknames from Eric, I don't even know how many to keep track of. How you doing, man? I'm good, man. I'm good. And uh, I enjoy the nicknames. Bird Dog, of course, because uh, when we went hunting for wild geese, they made me get the damn birds. Like the dog. And it's, I don't know. I guess they don't trust me with a gun. No, I wouldn't. But, <laughs> but anyway, so uh, while we're waiting for our computer issues to resolve themselves, I know you've got some fantastic stuff you're working on uh, for Vet Story. This, if you don't know, Vet Story is the podcast that Phil runs that air that uh, airs on ConnectingVets.com. It is also available for download on iTunes, Radio.com, all these places. We're working to expand it more because we want to get these fantastic stories out there. Can you give us a little preview of some of the stories you're working on right now? Yeah, well, I'll give you the one that just dropped. And it was 
really, I like I would I didn't even intend to make this a full podcast because as you said, vet story, they're normally longer format stories and we get deep into the story of a particular veteran or a particular issue. And uh, they're a lot of fun to put together. Uh Normally, I do deep, deep stories where it's a book review or it's like a story of somebody's life, you know, maybe somebody that went from the battlefield to a bar stool, you know, the highs and the lows and the whole kind of uh, Hollywood thematic sort of storylines. I went into this interview last week just looking to get a soundbite from a congressman. And I ended up uncovering a whole story. Wow. But uh, the deal is Representative Steve Pierce from New Mexico, I found this little blurb in a Santa Fe, New Mexico newspaper that said he wanted to make free hunting for veterans in the state of New Mexico. And as a congressman, it sounds kind of weird. Like, why is he interested in the state of New Mexico? But as it turns out, his term is ending this December, and he's also concurrently running for governor right now. Oh, So as the gubernatorial issues are being raised, he says one of the things he would do in 2019 as a governor, if so elected, would be give free deer tags to all veterans. Now, that's a big deal because that's a lot of money for the state coming in is from hunting licenses and stuff. And he wants to give that free to veterans. That's really cool. And in addition to the hunting licenses, he thought, why charge them for fishing licenses? <laughs> and, you know, you get looking at New Mexico and, man, they have some great game out there. They have some huge big game. So I thought, well, let's do a story on free deer hunting for veterans, right? I hunt. You like the outdoors, you know, why not, right? So No, I don't. I uh, no. You know, I just I just always look at you and see the damn beard and think you're an outdoorsman. No, the wild Jake is an indoor species. All right, Grizzly Adams. Well, you could have fooled me. But uh, either way, as I get to talking to him, I found out that uh, he's a Vietnam veteran, uh Air Force pilot, flying CH-130s, and he was in from uh, the mid to late sixties into the early seventies. So he was through the thick of it. I mean, when he was serving in 67, 68, 69, you know, that's when stuff, stuff was really getting real. Right. And as a pilot, he told me some great stories about not only battlefield stories about what it was like to fly on the Cambodian border, um, you know, flying in and out of sorties, in and out of areas where Nixon said that we actually were never on the ground. (laughs) And uh, he got into the whole um, rivalry between the CH-130 pilots and the attack helicopter pilots, and they called them trash haulers, and so they called the attack pilots fighter pukes. Uh, Told me a story about a bar somewhere in, in Vietnam in country there, I I don't know the specifics of what city or where it was, but told me about this scene in a bar where guys are pouring beer on the top of the bar doing what they're called carrier landings, where they get a running start and they got the bar all slick and wet <laughs> and they slide down the thing and slide off. He said he was not involved in those bar carrier landings, but he may or may not have been involved in uh, the movement of one colonel's Jeep from the outside of the bar to the inside of the bar, thus making it impossible for the colonel to make morning briefing the following morning. Oh, our gen- uh, a colonel can't make briefings? That's like the end of the world right there. <laughs> right. I mean, so he couldn't figure out how to get that thing out of there. And I, you know, I don't know how through their drunken engineering they were able to get it in the bar. But sometime between, you know, happy hour and last call, they got that thing square in the middle of the bar. And uh, it took uh, it took quite an effort to get it out. Um his his stories were not political, and it was just fun to follow and to get kind of you know veteran to veteran with these guys, like we do every week on Vet Story. But to uncover these kind of rare moments 
that he has and then his hopes and dreams for New Mexico, you know, in the coming years. And um, I also end with three reasons you need to visit New Mexico. And I'll say one of them I didn't expect. And one of them is just absolutely delicious. And I will have to let you <laughs> check out that story to uh, hear how that goes. Down. See how that works. We got a little tease going. It's, it's almost like we know what we're doing. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's really cool to see these people. Uh, like you know, when you talk to Congress people and stuff, especially the veterans, because when you speak to a congresswoman or a congresswoman, it's like they have to measure what they say. They they have right. to maintain a certain air about them. But when you're talking to someone who is also a veteran and you're a veteran yourself, you make that kind of connection. And do you find that helps people open up to you? Like, do you, like do you think people open up to you? better knowing that you're a veteran than if you weren't you know what and i think that's the work we do here every single day is we're able to get stories we're able to like find them and talk to them in a real way that other places don't and it was no more obvious to me than when i was doing uh doing some things this weekend and i listened to a podcast uh I don't want to say it's meet the press, but it was something very similar. It was like a major network news political thing. And Congressman Pierce had spoken on this program and I listened to how they went at him. And, you know, the mainstream media, and I don't mean to be mainstream media versus, you know, other kinds of media. But when you look at the networks, when you look at the large shows, the way they attack a story, the way they try to package a story is they want to get into the weeds, they want to get political, and they want to find these gotcha moments where, well, what do you think of the wall? Well, what do you think of this divisive issue? Well, what do you think of Kavanaugh's uh, hearing? What do you think of this? What do you think of that? And they're trying to find division. They're trying to find a soundbite. When you and I talk to a vet, you know, we're talking about Vietnam, and instead of glossing over it and being like, well, thank you for your service. It was very kind of you to serve in Vietnam. <laughs> we're able to like go, hey, man, what was that like? You know? You were in theater. You played in the sandbox for years. Yep. Veteran to veteran, you can. You're allowed to ask. Hey, man, tell me about the suck. And also, hey, man, tell me about one moment that was pretty cool because we all know they existed. We all know in the brotherhood and you know in the camaraderie of our experience overseas or wherever we were. There's that thing about being in the military where you know, even in the worst of times, there's these hilarious moments yeah, is what, that what? you just have to know about. And unless you've been there or you've been in the fraternity, you've been in the service, you've been in the group, you wouldn't know to ask that kind of stuff because you're just a reporter on the outside looking in to a military machine you don't understand. And because we get it, we can BS with them, man. And I find that when I really get to just BS and I end up getting better stories than if I were to just stick strictly to policy issues and go, well, tell me about your thoughts on, you know, why veterans should have free hunting. How does that affect the budget? I don't care how it affects the budget. Yeah, tell me well, about some big old game, man. Tell me about some 16-point bucks. Yeah. Well, no, it's no. Like, when I talk to uh, uh, Max Rose, who's running for Congress, or when we speak to uh, Dan Crenshaw, who's running down in, in Texas, it, it's, it's a very natural... Uh, transition because we can talk about hey man what was that one that one moment of incomprehensible WTF that happened to you <laughs> while you were overseas and then that but that, one moment of WTF that happened yeah later. just give me one you know of the of the 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 universal feelings of what the hell am I doing give me that one moment yeah, yeah but yeah. then when you transfer but then when you you know do that transition over to more official stuff it's like they're more relaxed they're more open and for our purposes that's great because right. you know hey we're the press but also it's just because they know that we're not out to get you we're not trying to paint you as a political enemy or opponent or ally or whatever we're right. just we're just vets trying to get the story for other vets 
And oftentimes that story did involve somewhere around a bar stool, or at least that's what I like about that story is yeah. I'm not afraid to just, you know, I'm not afraid to drop the titles, call a man, say, hey, bud, and just, you know, get down into what was real with our experience, both in the military. And then if you can translate that into our experience in the real world out here, you know, what they are doing in Congress, you know, you shouldn't be afraid to bust some balls occasionally. I called him out on cannabis a little bit and said, hey, Congress, you guys passed from the committee the VA Medicinal Research Act or the VA Cannabis Medicinal Research Act, the only piece of legislation that didn't want vets to actually be prescribed weed. It was just, hey, VA, can you report back to us in 90 days what studies you are doing and how you're getting it done? And it never even got it, – it made it out of committee and there it died on the floor. It never even got voted on. So I called him out and I was like, Rep Pierce, can you help me? Talk to one of your colleagues on the House Rules Committee and find out how come you just never you never voted on the damn thing. I mean, <laughs> Representative Waltz had good intentions when he passed it to have the VA start looking at cannabis research. And when I came at him like that, he was way more receptive. And he was just like, yeah, you know what? I know Pete Sessions from Texas. I'll tell you what. Give me a call and I'll, you know, I'll connect you two guys. And it's because we dropped the BS. We dropped I, – I, I didn't try to run and gun at him like a – like a network news person looking to make a story. I just tried to, you know, talk yeah. to him one guy we to don't, another. We don't make the story. We find the story. Yeah. Yeah. So the computer's back up, and I want to ask you something because we're going to transfer sure, to something, something a little more fun. You were in the Navy in the 80s, correct? 90s. 90s. I'm yeah. sorry. You're not that old yet. Jesus. He thinks <laughs> I'm like 100 years old. In my when, 40s. Yeah. When did you serve? What years? Uh, 94 to 98. 94 to 98. So let me ask you, in the Navy, what sort of PT gear did you wear in the mornings when you did your morning PT? Was it just usual, the, the shorts and the normal shirts or whatever? You don't have pictures, do you? No, no, no. Okay, no. Okay. God, no. I would have to boil my eyes out. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. We had the Navy T and then, you, you know, the shorty... Running shorts. Yeah, so, but are you familiar with the, the, to me, when I think of PT gear, there's two of the most famous kinds of PT gear out there. One is the iconic Ranger panties, which is the super short ones that the arm, that, that <laughs> Army Rangers wear. But there's also the silkies. Right. You, you've seen the silkies before, right? Are I those mean, like the jogging shorts that are cut kind of to like a V yeah. on the sides? Yes. Yeah, then I guess we had silkies? Yeah, I guess that was because there's a place... And I'm trying to find where it exactly is. It's in uh, Cedar Falls. We'll report back on city. They organized a silky hike, and this was to raise awareness for the better to prevent veteran suicide and reduce the effects of PTSD. And they went on a 9.5 mile trek throughout the town of Cedar Falls, and they were uh, all wearing silkies. But there's they're all veterans, and they're all and there's the picture I wish I could show people here is of a guy with a bit of a gut. Wearing nothing but uh, a silkies, a boonie hat, and a rucksack carrying an American flag. And I'm like, that is the most iconically veteran picture I can imagine, you know? <laughs> it, but it's just really cool. Like, in your time in uh, Vet Story, and we're running short on time, but I want to ask you, yeah, yeah. have you seen what have, has been the feeling you got for veterans helping other veterans out? Like, like, What's one of your favorite stories of veterans helping other veterans that you can think of off the top of your head? Oh, gosh. One I haven't done yet. Can I do one that yeah, I'm getting absolutely, ready to absolutely. do? Yeah, absolutely. Tease your stuff, man. Okay. There's a, there's a veteran out there, and he is a real estate mogul. And he started flipping houses back when it was 
first popularized and really a trend. And he did well, you know, he made some money doing that, but he realized the overhead of flipping houses was no longer like a side job. I mean, he was, you know, had revenue in the millions, but it was, he was having to staff people. He was having to keep contractors on staff. He was having to hire architects. It just got to be a machine. He didn't want to, he didn't want to live on a treadmill like that. So he thought, well, I, I really wanted real estate for passive income. So he got into rental properties, which is ideally, you know, the American dream, get a couple rental properties, make you some money on the side. It's, you know, a good revenue stream every month, kind of a retirement plan, if you will. Right. He discovered the fact that by helping homeless veterans with a program called the HUD-VASH, which is Housing Urban Development Voucher Program, it guarantees homeless veterans that are, that are trying to find some sort of transitional housing, it guarantees them a monthly stipend. And of that monthly money, like 30% of it can be used for rent. So this gentleman went out and found rental properties near places that would employ these homeless veterans and started to triangulate these problems in southern Chicago or in the south side of Chicago. And now he's got like 15 or 20 rental properties that are all helping homeless vets transition into better lives. And everyone wins. He gets his rental money from housing urban development. The homeless veterans get the voucher to help them reboot their lives. They get employed because they can find these rental properties near places that will hire them. And the next thing you know, he's not only doing passive rental income, but he's changing probably 10 to 20 lives a month. Well, that's really cool stuff. You can find that more on Vet Story on ConnectingVets.com. Look it up there. Coming up, we're going to have Steph Mullen from IAVA. But before that, two ladies we're going to have from the Washington, D.C. VA Medical Center. Lots of cool stuff. So make sure you stick around. ConnectingVets.com. He's Phil Briggs. I'm Jake Hughes. You're awesome. And we shall return right after this. <laughs> we're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Morning Briefing here on Intercom Radio's ConnectingBets.com. Connecting Bets every day. Super producer JQ is here sitting in the driver's seat, and I'm going to remind you, and I'm going to keep reminding you until you do it, to check out the website, ConnectingBets.com, your one-stop shop for all things veteran-related, and make sure you're also following us on social media, where we are at Connecting Bets on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us to get the latest and greatest information. You'll know exactly when things pop off. We stay on top of the veteran sphere because we are the veteran sphere. Everyone here at ConnectingVets.com knows what it's like to put that uniform on and to take it off for the last time, except for our currently serving National Guards woman, but you know what? She's cool too. We'll allow her in. And uh, so make sure you follow us. You'll know exactly what things are going off, and you'll generally be awesome, which is what's the most important thing in life is being awesome. It really is. Anyway. We have some very special guests in the studio today. I'm joined by two ladies who work at the uh, VA Medical Center here in our nation's capital of Washington, D.C. I'm joined by Gloria Hairston. She is the director of the Office of Public Affairs and Community Relations at the Washington, D.C. VA Medical Center. And also, we are joined by Gail Bell, who is the Women Veterans Program Manager. Ladies, thank you so much for joining us here on the Morning Briefing. 
Thank you for having us. Yes, it's a pleasure to be here. We're just as excited about this as you. Well, awesome. That's I love the enthusiasm. <laughs> let's keep that up. So let's start off with a little bit of basic information. Uh, Gloria, I understand you are not a veteran, but so just tell us a little bit briefly, how did you get involved with Veterans Care and the VA Center here in D.C.? Oh, my goodness. Not a veteran, but truly serve with passion. Um, I am the veteran caregiver to my brother, who is a Gulf War veteran um, and lives with MS and ulcerative colitis as a result of his service. Um, So caring for him um, and enjoying every minute of every challenge that we have. Um, And I am also the wife um, to an OEF, OIF, OND veteran who served four tours. Oh, wow. Okay, that's impressive. 23 years and go Army. Thank you. See, she, you're one of the you're one of the good people that understands that yes. go army. I'm an army vet myself, obviously. So, and uh, Gail, I understand you are a veteran, correct? I am. Um, not only did I serve in the Army Nurse Corps, I'm a wife of 40 years of a retired military uh, army. So we're both army. Whoa. And uh, absolutely loved every minute of it. Spent a lot of time at Fort Bragg, uh, and most of my nursing career. In a VA medical center, first at uh, the one at Fayetteville, North Carolina, and the one here. Okay, so let's get into the nitty-gritty here. Um, First off, let me check my list here exactly what we're going to talk about. So uh, I actually received care at the medical center here in D.C., and I have to say, in, in my personal experience, the care has been fantastic. But I know in the past there have been some issues, so I'm wondering... What is the current status of the VA center here in DC? Like, you know, uh, what kind of, what healthcare do you provide? Jake, I have to tell you, um, first of all, that not, not much has changed um, by way of us providing care. Every employee there, I've been there for 11 years. We truly do have a commitment to caring for veterans. We're not going to get wrapped up into what politics says we literally serve this mission. It's a mission of providing safe, quality health care to every veteran that is eligible for that care. And that's the good thing about uh, caring for veterans at the DCVA Medical Center because we have the opportunity not to care for those who just have physical wounds. We care for all veterans, male, female, doesn't matter your branch of service. If you are eligible for that care, Army, Marine, U.S., we care for veterans. And it is so gratifying to serve a mission um, where we are actively working to provide safe, quality health care. And that health care to some may be surprising once they have an opportunity to visit the medical center. It's nothing like what's portrayed publicly. They get in and realize that we're serving over 98,000 veterans, actively serving over 98,000 veterans who receive their care there, outpatient, inpatient, among 46 different services. We are comprehensive health care from primary care to bariatric surgery to cardiology to audiology to dental. We provide the gamut of care for those who served. We appreciate what you do, and it sounds like it. Now, I understand there's several construction things going on right now at the VA. I know for a fact, because this frustrated me the last time, because there is a new... Uh, parking garage being built which is great except for the fact that when i went there now i had to drive like 20 minutes to find a parking spot so what's the status of that so the status of our parking garage we are super excited if i could invite you to join us socially get social with us um, on facebook at washington dc vamc on twitter at dc vamc or visit our website at washington dc dot 
va.gov. You'll be able to see the construction website there and see our progress. The garage now has the two layers already set. We are ahead of schedule and we are looking to decompress um, some of that frustration soon. The funny thing about this is prior to the garage going under construction, we did have the foresight and the vision to open up other parking. So they took away the meditation area to the back and the little recreation area and removed that and made it a smaller area. So we did create surface parking. So technically, we only lost one parking space due to the construction. Oh, wow. So I just I just stink at finding parking spots, apparently. It's really tough. <laughs> you know, our numbers are really growing. So we're taking care of more and more veterans. We're having our model is a patient aligned care team model where we are encouraging family members to get involved and we're encouraging the veteran to take take full control of their health care. So when you include the family member, the caregiver in that, it may become two parking spaces instead of that one for the veteran. So just understand, grow with us. We are doing everything we can to make it better. We do apologize, but we appreciate the patience that you have. We still do have a valet service. If you pull up to the front door, show your veteran ID, we'll park it for you. You don't have to miss an appointment. Yeah, that's great. And uh, it's, you know, you mentioned it growing and one of the fastest growing areas of our, our population of veterans is female veterans. And we just recently spoke with uh, Reg Riley, the new national commander of AMVETS, who said that reaching out to women veterans is his major priority for his term. And so, Ms. Bell, I want to know. What is the VA Medical Center here in D.C. doing to help outreach to women veterans? First of all, let me thank you for the opportunity to talk on this topic. We're doing absolutely a lot. And one of the things is outreach, the various measures of outreach, not only with our health fairs, through social media, um, through uh, venues such as yourself to be able to get the word out in as many ways as possible what the DCVA Medical Center is doing. Um, before I get into specifics of women's health, I'd just like to add on to what Ms. Harrison has said. You know, our VA has grown tremendously, but in changing our health care, we want to change the way you even connect to your provider. So at one point, the only way you could see your provider was to come in and to bring two carloads of family because we always encourage family to be a part of it. But now when you look at secure messaging, when you look at medical advice, when you make a telephone appointment with your provider, that will allow you to get that care without driving in. So we want to help you with that frustration because we know it's frustrating, but we're trying to work with that as well. Yeah, I've actually have received telehealth from the VA Medical Center here in D.C. And it was great because I, I, uh, I usually have to take off time from work to go to these appointments. Well, this time I took off work anyway and I went home and I got to be you know comfortable in my own home speaking to my healthcare provider which is a fantastic thing for Absolutely. me because it means I don't have to deal with DC traffic Absolutely. as much as I have to and uh, so I that's a tangent I apologize so getting back to female veterans and the outreach programs that y'all have Absolutely. Uh, well, we have the Women's Health Clinic. We've been in that particular clinic since 2014, of which we expanded from about 1,300 square feet of space to 7,800 square feet of space. Oh, wow. And we did that to accommodate our growing number of women veterans. Um, 
I consider myself a little historian. As I told you before, I've been there quite a while. And when I first uh, got in this role in 2003, we were taking care of roughly 2,200 female veterans. I'm here to say now we have active uniques, meaning a female veteran has come into that VA at least one time over 12,000 female veterans, and that number is growing. In fact, that number also represents about 18% of all of the veterans taking care of the DCVA Medical Center. So I think that attests to the fact that our, with our outreach, we're getting to some of the masses to let them know that when you come to the DCVA Medical Center, the care that you get, which includes comprehensive women's health care, which is encouraging our women to be assigned to providers who have been trained and who has the specific interest in women's health care. In our clinic, uh, we have a variety, a host of services, such as we have a gynecologist, a breast surgeon. We have an endocrinologist because we recognize that we do have a population of transgender uh, veterans. And if they so self-identify, they can be seen in the women's health clinic. We recognize that women, um, mental health care is a very, very big issue. But here at our facility, you're able to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist right in the comforts of an area that is designated for women veterans. And then we can talk about other services such as um, our mammography service. You can come right to the clinic. You don't need to have a consult. You can call to schedule your own appointment when it's convenient to you. And that's uh, not only our mission, we want to make health care where it's available for you. We want you to be included, not only what type of health care you get, but, you know, the time you're able to get it, what's convenient for you, because we recognize You've got a life as well outside of just coming in, spending all day trying to see a provider and all your other appointments. Exactly. Because, I mean, I, as I've said before on this show that, you know, when it comes to the VA, at least my, my I have had nothing but positive experiences with the VA as far as even like the people, the part that people complain about, you know, supposed to bureaucracy and waiting. And I've never had to wait that long. And I've had two experiences with the VA, with VA clinics, the one in Houston and the one here in D.C. And I got to say, the one here in D.C., it's been great. And it's just because, like you said, mentioning that you offer the telehealth services and the telephone appointments because uh, we've established already traffic in DC is a nightmare. And so you can't always, it's not always convenient to have to drive all the way across town to meet with your provider. So the telehealth is a very good thing. How has that program expanded over the recent several years, the telehealth program? Oh my goodness. Telehealth is wow. We have, we have an, outstanding leader of our program. Um, In fact, he's leading uh, national initiatives for the VA, and that's Dr. Sean Norman, um, who's doing a tremendous work um, from teledermatology to teleretinal to, I mean, he has expanded that program and found the the necessary equipment, um, the technology uh, to be able to just spread and move forward. In fact, um, to expand care even more, we are also expanding in the community. We're making closer to home care for veterans. Um, and we're also able to say that our community-based outpatient clinics are not just primary health. It's primary health care as well as specialty care because we have the opportunity of telehealth. 
Um, and recently, speaking of the community-based outpatient clinics, um, last Monday was our first opportunity to receive a patient for the first time in Montgomery County. We opened the doors of our Montgomery County, Maryland community-based outpatient clinic, and we are expanding to Southern Maryland as well so that those veterans are not having to drive from California, Maryland, all the way to the District of Columbia to get care. Um, so we, we have five CBOX operational right now, and we'll have two more adding um, in Lexington Park, and we're expanding in Charlotte Hall soon. So, But telehealth itself is helping us to really, really change the delivery of this VA care. Um, and we just need to get our veterans on board. If they are frightful of telehealth, we don't mind. We will educate you on the system. You can come in and understand the system how it works will even help you get registered for my healthy vet we have people right on site in the transition and care management center um, as part of our business office as part of our entire team will help you to understand uh, enrollment in my healthy vet and having the secure messaging opportunity as well nothing like being able to think you're driving home and you're thinking yep i've had this pain uh, on my left side for three days now, I really need to talk to a doctor. Talk to a doctor means you pick that smartphone up, you log into your account, and you send a secure message to your doctor. This is what I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And that, and that, so that was goes to the next question I was going to ask you. Uh, how does one enroll in VA care? Like, say someone just retired from the military or just got out on, on some other way, and they have that VA care available to them. How do they get involved with the Washington, D.C. Medical Center? They can make a telephone call to us, um, catch us at an outreach event, come into the medical center. Listen, our business, the CBOC, our business office team is all about enrolling veterans. Many of them are veterans themselves, will tell you what you need to bring. Just come. We'll figure it out for you. We'll give you some preliminary. They just want you to come in and really get the health care that you've earned and you've deserved. They're willing to work with you, make appointment. If you know that you're most available on Mondays, they will give you a time. Come in, make it easy to help you get it expedited. They will help you complete the paperwork, do it right there one on one. Absolutely. It's just that easy. You can log online. But we like when you come in. Yeah, we really we do. do. And not <laughs> yeah. only that, uh, even with the outreach that I alluded to earlier, I usually have an outreach person with me as well to answer those questions right there on the spot. And it's just amazing to look over to the left and, oh, well, she's giving out her card or she's taking some information. So there are just too many ways that you can get connected to us. Too many ways. And we also have, um, now because Gail also does some of this as well, we have um, one employee that they just love dearly, so they request um, Dania McAdams by name uh, for the TAPS and the transition um, from DOD to veteran status. Uh, she goes to present at many of the um, the joint bases and forts around the area. So she's um, really actively involved on the DLD side and Gail Bell is as well, especially with Andrews. Right. Absolutely. I'm um, the Center for Women Veterans. The VA is partnering with a local company, Delos, to establish what we call a pilot taps program specifically for women. Uh, it's about a four hour didactic. We're uh, partnering right now with the Air Force. But what's amazing is um there's a um, a particular event that they do, 
and they list, they have cards of a variety of services, and they ask the participants to just put them in a category. Does the VA have them? They don't have these programs, or they don't know. And it just amazes me at how many of those cards they put in other areas other than the VA provides this service. So that tells us that there's that untapped population that is not aware of all the services. In fact, everything that's listed, the VA provides to include integrated health and wellness where, you know, you can get Tai Chi, yoga, uh, preventive medicine to maternity care. Although the VA doesn't deliver babies, we certainly have a case manager working with you to the time we know that you are pregnant, ensure that you get into the community as well as check on you throughout your 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 pregnancy and then even after birth and offer a baby shower and offer a baby shower. <laughs> not only the baby shower we recognize sometimes for some family there's joy for some families there's sorrow we do offer or we do recognize those families that might have experienced maternal and fetal child loss just to recognize them to let them know that the VA is here we care we have services for you during your time of bereavement and just to keep you connected to us as we want to be connected to you and that leads to a question i was going to ask specifically about is there any different or I mean, how I'm trying to word this exactly. What do you think is the biggest or most common issue that if a female veteran comes to you and says, I have this problem, I mean, not obviously not again in, in, in privacy issues, but mm -hmm. what is the most common issue that female veterans you think face in your experience? For me, a lot of them face not uh, recognizing that they are number one veterans and could be eligible for care. Just recently when I participated in one of the pilot programs, one of the ladies did not consider herself a veteran. She had only served like seven years. Active duty, consecutive years. Yeah, only seven and, uh, years right, right, in active duty. Absolutely, but she still did not consider herself a veteran. This is 2018, and she still was not aware that she would be once she left active duty. Well, there was another one. Once she left active duty, she would be a veteran and eligible for the multitude of services that the VA provide. So for me, we have to get that information out and get you at the door. Once you get to the door, we focus on preventive health. We do recognize, you know, uh, mental health issues, particularly PTSD, uh, particularly uh, military sexual trauma, all that we have to offer services, groups, both uh, gender specific, both, you know, um, combined groups. Co-ed. Yeah, absolutely. Simply because there's some females that we have, they don't mind. You know, they were in the military to fight alongside their comrades. So they don't mind these co-ed groups. But then there are those that like the comfort of speaking to like-minded, speaking to, you know, in a room feeling more comfortable with uh, other females. Yeah, I think that's I think that's important that people realize that because when we focus when we talk about female veterans, we often focus on the specific issues that females face, and that is important. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, like as you said, they are veterans just like Joe Infantryman or Danny Tanker or whatever. They Absolutely. serve in the same capacities, and so they may face the same issues that male veterans face. Absolutely, mm -hmm. particularly when we look at uh, and light of the conflicts that we've experienced, you know, the multi, uh, 
the um the I'm sorry, the muscular skeletal issues have been the biggest ones, the back pains, you know, carrying the rucksacks, you know, these long hikes, the whole nine yards. So, you know, it's important that people know that at the VA, we provide women's health comprehensive health care. And I'd like to take a few minutes just to define that. You know, before um, in the VA, and I speak because I feel also that I'm a historian, if you will, not (laughs) only as a veteran, but also having been at the VA for a very long time and seeing the evolution of what we've done at the VA to make our women veterans feel comfortable to coming to us that we can care uh, for them. But comprehensive women's health care is when you can be assigned or when you are assigned to a provider who has that specific designation of women's health. And with that provider, you build a relationship where you can get not only your internal medicine issues taken care of, your back pain, your headaches, your earaches, but you can also get your gender-specific exams. I mean, think about it. In yesteryear, we sent you here to get this taken care of, and then we either gave you a consult where you had to make another appointment to get that taken care of, but now you can establish that not only with your provider, but with your patient alignment care team, the PAC team that Gloria alluded to area, whereby you might not be able to get specifically to your physician at a particular point in time, but your team consists of a nurse, other ancillary support team. If you get to them, it's like getting to your provider. So that I think is a a positive now that the VAs nationally are now doing. And people are enjoying the mere fact that they have a home, if you will, when they come into the medical center. And that's what's important, that feeling of home. Absolutely. So uh, Gloria, tell me, if people want to learn more about what the Washington DC VA Medical Center is doing, where can they go? Just call me directly. It's just easier. 202-745-4037. 202-745-4037. Once again, Gloria Hairston, 202-745-4037. Um, to make an appointment or something of that nature to come in to handle business, 202-745-8000 um, is our main number. But also visit us on the web. There's lots of important information there at Washington, D.C., dot va dot gov now that's different from the national va dot gov website if you tap into washington dc dot va dot gov it's going to give you specific information about your medical center right here in the nation's capital and then do follow us on social media we put lots of events up lots of outreach opportunities lots of free stuff um, gifts and giveaways because we are always receiving donations so get social with us on Facebook at Washington, D.C. VAMC and on Twitter at D.C. VAMC. OK, well, Gloria Harrison and Gail Bell from the Washington, D.C. VA Medical Center. Thank you, ladies, so much for appearing on the show. This was a great interview. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And, you know, we just get so excited about educating veterans and sharing this information <laughs> because we want you to come in. You earned it. You deserve it. And we're here serving that mission to make sure you get it. And if I might add to all of my sister veterans out there, there is a woman veteran program manager at each facility where you might be. Please get connected. Know who that person is. She will serve as a resource for you and just someone that you can talk to get connected with and help answer some of your questions all right well thank y'all for coming to the show you've been listening to the morning briefing here on intercom radio's connectingvets.com vets every day i'm jq she's gloria she's gail you're awesome and we shall return 
helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Morning Briefing here on Intercom Radio's ConnectingBets.com. Connecting Bets every day. Super producer Jake Hughes here sitting in the driver's seat because, once again, host Eric Dame is down in Florida hosting this conference that's going to be incredibly cool. Lots of really cool veterans down there. We're going to get a lot of cool information for y'all, lots of good stories. It's going to be generally fantastic. And I'm going to remind you, and I'm going to keep reminding you until you do it, Check out the website, ConnectingBets.com, your one-stop shop for all things veteran-related. And make sure you follow following us on social media. We are at ConnectingBets on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us to get the latest and greatest information. You'll know exactly when things pop off because we stay on top of that stuff. We are the veteran community, so we care about the veteran community. Now, it's Monday, and you know what that means? Everyone kind of low-key wishes they could be sick so they could stay home. You know, some people wish even worse, but that's neither here nor there. What's more important is that's Monday, which means we're speaking with someone from Iraq and Afghanistan, Veterans of America, IAVA, and we are joined by Steph Mullins from them. Steph, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's always a pleasure to have you. Now, we have a lot of topics to talk about, so let's start off with this. Uh, recently, Rand recently released a study on sexual harassment and assault in the military. Not exactly the funnest topic to start with, but it's an important one that we need to talk about. So what can you tell us about this, this study? Absolutely. Probably fitting for a rainy Monday, right? Yeah. Uh, so SAPRO, which is the DOD's um, sexual harassment and assault office, commissioned Rand to do this big report. And it's from 2014, um, 2014 data that they took this from. And it looks at the rate not the prevalence. So just making that distinction there of the sexual assault and harassment at different installations across DOD. So they looked at Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, and really trying to target the installation-specific risk of um, sexual assault and harassment for service members, and specifically the active component. Um, and so it's a really interesting study. Um Definitely raises some red flags for us, but I think it's also a target of opportunity that DOD can now take this information and target these installations that have higher risks than others um, to really put in place the, their sexual harassment training, their sexual assault training, and put in a lot of preventative measures going forward. Right. And uh, it's important to be track this kind of stuff because, like we said, it's not the most glamorous subject. It's not something we want to talk about, but unfortunately it is a problem, not just in the military, but across the board. But the military is one of those groups where it, 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 how am I trying to put this? It's extra offensive because we're supposed to be looking out for each other. We're supposed to have each other's backs and yet attacks and harassment still happens. So what about, what did it say? Where are these attacks most uh, common? Yeah, it's really interesting. So it's a 119-page report, uh, and I would really encourage anyone who's interested in it to take a look. But it goes through the different um, the different branches, right? So overall, Air Force has the lowest overall risk. Um, the Navy had the highest risk installation, uh, and most of their high-risk installations were actually on 
there are different ships going out, aircraft carriers, um, that sort of thing. They also broke it down by branch. So, for example, uh, for the Army, I'm going to pick on a little bit Fort Drum. Fort Drum was one of the higher ones, um, both across the board on high-risk installation. And then Rand did this really cool thing where they took out, if you were just to take out individual factors, let's say um, junior enlisted, the age of those people um, in that base, um, the gender, what is the risk if we take out those personnel factors? And Fort Drum also had one of the higher risks just because if you were assigned to that base, you'd have a 2% higher risk of sexual assault and of sexual assault just for being on that installation and a 4% higher risk for harassment just being on that installation. So did the, did the study mention, uh, mention why the, all these factors came into play? Because, I mean, like, what is it about Fort Drum? Is it just that it's really cold there, so there's nothing else to do? I mean, okay, that was horrible, and I apologize for that. But you, you, you know what I mean? It's like, it, did they give reasons why as to certain posts or certain places were at higher risk than others? Yeah, they didn't really get into it that much, um, and I think that that's the next stage, right? That's what DOD needs to do now and that we hope that they'll do now. Um, and it's important to note, too, that these are service members that are assigned to that command, not necessarily on duty when they may have been harassed or assaulted. Um, so they did, you know, say it might have something to do with, like, alcoholic alcohol availability, crime rates, command culture. There's so many different things that go into these things. Um, but that doesn't mean there's nothing to do about it. So for these high-risk installations in particular, I think it's really important that DOD takes this information and puts it into action of doing more trainings of, you know, really getting into the active component there and making sure that people on the ground have the tools necessary to prevent it and also the tools to report if they need to. Okay. Now, um, I find it interesting that it said that the Air Force was the lowest and uh, because one would tend to think that this kind of thing would break down by numbers as in the, the Marine Corps would be the lowest because they had the least amount of people in the Army who would be the highest. Uh, but so, it, but did you find it interesting that it said that like Navy ships or like was what was worse than some posts? Did you find that uh, interesting or? Yeah, I definitely found it alarming. I well, think that alarming would be, would be a better the, word, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's not by numbers, right? That's the prevalence side of it. This is kind of breaking down the rate and the percentage. Um, and so I think it was really troubling to me to see some of the Navy ships um, and some of those risk factors. So, for example, for one installation within the Navy, there was a 17% risk for women at that specific installation for assault. So that means about According to the RAND study, one in six women in that installation were assaulted in fiscal year 2014. That is incredibly disturbing. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, and again, this is all um, variable, right? So I we're, this is not quite fact, and I don't want to put this um, on any you know women that may feel personally victimized by this. Um, but this is a really challenging topic, and it is really hard to talk about. And um, I do think that, again, this is just a call to action that we need to be doing more, especially on like this installation in particular. 
um, or any of the installation that ranks in the top high risk areas. Yeah, because it's and it's important to remember, and it's one of those things that's not off talked about is that I mean, we all know, like you said, one in six women has a risk of being assaulted at that post, whatever that might be. We don't need to name names, but. You know, it, I when I was in the army, one of the things that they would teach us, sort of at the tail end of all our you know sexual assault prevention classes, was that it's estimated that most assault uh, uh, things, or okay, not most. What am I talking about? That uh, the the growing number is actually uh, where the victims are male. Mm-hmm. Because and that's just because they're underreported, mm-hmm. and so it's important to when people th- think about this, it's easy to frame it as we have to, you know, have, oh, this is a female problem, but no, this is a this is an everyone problem because anyone can be assaulted, and more importantly, anyone can be an assaulter, mm-hmm. and it's the, the kind of thing that we need to raise awareness of. And this study brings a good thing brings out. Like you said, important information and it's a call to action. Now, I know that IAVA, one of your big six priorities is sustained campaign to recognize and improve services for women veterans. With this information, how do you think IAVA would re- is How is IAVA reacting to this study? Yeah, I think you brought up a really good point that I want to go back to and kind of highlight, and that is that Military sexual assault and military sexual trauma is not a woman's issue. It's an everybody issue. Um, And in fact, VA data is a great place to look for this. Um, VA screens for military sexual trauma as you enter into VA. And their numbers are like one in four women and it's one in 100 men. But it's actually the number of men are higher than the number of women. And it's the rates are different, but the numbers are you know, show that change. And it's just because there's a lot more men that come into VA than women. Um, so it is really important not to just frame this as a women's issue, but it is an everybody issue. In regards to IAVA, um, absolutely, this is something that we're concerned about. This did just come out on Friday uh, and Friday kind of midday. So we're still grappling with what does this mean and where can we go from here? But I think um we're hoping to work with, you know, DOD. We're hoping to work with others in the space to continue to get the word out about resources, to continue to collect data like this and to learn more about the problem um, and to push the issue further. Yeah. And one thing to remember, and this came to me as I'm thinking about my time in the military, is that when you say sexual assault, it's easy to think, oh, that means rape. But there are there are things that you there are things that can be done that are are sexual assault, but it's not outright rape. Like I can think of off the top of my head. I mean, this is really sad. Several we used to call them games that soldiers would play involving making someone look at a part of your body or other things like that. That you I mean, it made everyone uncomfortable, but no one wanted to say anything because there was that mentality, especially, and this is prevalent in combat arms, MOSs especially, that, you know, oh, we're supposed to be the rough, tough, you know, hardcore soldiers. We can't be complaining about stuff like this. But that's what this is. And it's important to remember that when it comes to assault and harassment, it's not about the intent. It's about what the victim feels happened. So it, it, it's spreading awareness and raising that, you know, it's not just some 
you know, uh, some dude in a trench coat sneaking around alleyways that's, you know, preying on women. That it, 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 it's, it's like you said, it's an everyone issue. And it's one of those things we need to raise education and awareness for. Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly an uncomfortable topic, right? Um, and it wasn't too long ago that we had the Marines United scandal where I think this topic kind of first came out that you know sexual assault doesn't just mean rape and you're completely right there's so many different shades there's so many different variations um and it is about what the victim feels and also the reaction there but there's also right and wrong right and if you feel like something's not right probably isn't and maybe just don't do it yeah it's, uh, it's what we used to call the sniff test if it doesn't smell right don't do it you know? yeah absolutely uh but again i think that you know, DOD's made steps to encourage that kind of dialogue and also uh, keep their active component informed of this stuff. Uh, I hope that continues and even expands. Okay. So we got the report that came out and we have the information now. What do you think is the next, what would you think is the next logical step? My hope would be that DOD takes this report identifies those at-risk installations and does some targeted training on those installations. Yeah. Cuz it's it, well it's kind of it's kind of a complicated thing in that like we in the military some of my time was in we always used to groan and roll our eyes oh we got to do more sharp training we got to do more sapper training or EO training but then you realize that this kind of stuff still happens mm-hmm. and it's one of those things where at the end of the day, it's kind of like a safety briefing in that all th- there are things you can do, but at the end of the day, all you can do is tell people not to do certain things. And it just kind of falls down to that individual person to say, I'm not going to do whatever it is they said. So this targeted training, I think, is the logical step. I agree with that because that's – and like we've been talking about, it, we need to change perceptions. That it's not just – you know, a man forcing himself upon a woman, it, it can take many forms. It can take many avenues. Yeah. I certainly think it's the easiest step to take. I think the harder steps are the culture change that needs to happen mm-hmm. within DOD. It's um, the command structure that needs to change. It is um, identifying those command climates that are not supportive of um victims of sexual harassment and assault and identifying them and then doing something about it. You know, bringing the hammer down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Those are the hard things to do, right? And I hope DOD takes those hard steps, um, but that will be long-term. I think, like, the trainings are short-term. We can do that within, what, 90, 180 days. Exactly. And it's, like you said, it's that... It's protecting against, it's the, the military still clinging to that, why he used to call the good old boy system. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, that's the mentality of boys will be boys and, you know, we just got to, you know, it, we'll let this slide or the command that doesn't want to get in, or make waves and all these things that are the absolute wrong answer when you look at like, again, I can only look from the ve- from the veil of the army. You know, you look at the army values and these kind of things are not conducive to the environment we say we want to build, so now we need to do something about it. And like you said, that's a very difficult thing. And it, like you said, it's a culture change that has to take place. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, on to something a little. Okay, I don't know if this is happier, but it's something a little more positive. Uh, the continuation of the Afghan Special Immigrant Visa Program. Now, 
I was never served in Afghanistan, but I did two tours in Iraq. And I'm assuming this has something to do with interpreters. It does. Because when I was, you know, when I was in Iraq, we served with a couple of different, we used to call them TERPs, you know, just sort of as a shorthand. But our interpreters helped us out a lot. And as far as not just communicating the language, but I know, I know we had one interpreter, we call him Big Tony. And he was actually from that region. He always wore a mask because he didn't want to be noticed or put his family at risk. But he could tell us not just what the person is saying, but what it means as far as like, you know, okay, he said this, but I know that in this area, most people have an AK in their house, so they probably still have weapons or whatever, you know, so they, they do so much for us. And the end goal for a lot of them is citizenship of the U.S. is to move their family over here. But that process has been slow, sticky, and unacceptable. And so what can you tell us about this uh, special immigrant visa program? Yeah, so you are right on the money. Um, very much the experiences that you were talking about in Iraq are the same in Afghanistan. We work with allies on the ground. Um, our, our government works with allies on the ground um, and uses Iraqi uh, civilians as translators, interpreters, contractors, and many of whom put their lives on the line for the U.S. Um, because they believe in what we're doing over there and their lives are threatened daily for the work that they do or can do or did or continue to do uh, for America um, from other sources in Afghanistan. So this program, the Special Immigrant Visa Program, uh, specifically for Afghan nationals, was started in 2009. And there was a similar one for Iraqi nationals um, from 2008 to 2014, but that goes through a different program now. This one is just right. for Afghan nationals. Um, and really it's to you know honor the service, protect our allies, and to incentivize that assistance that they make um, for us on the ground. And every year Congress has to um, authorize a certain number. So to date there's been, by my count, over 25,000. Uh, and last year in the NDAA for fiscal year 2018, there was about 3,500. So as you know, we're coming up to the end of fiscal year 2018, and there has been no approval for anything in 2019, fiscal year 2019. Um, there was no authorization in the NDAA for 2019, uh, but there is an opportunity coming up for the state foreign operations and related programs appropriation bill where we're hoping we'll see um, some of these visas get in there. Um, and it's something that has bipartisan, bicameral support over many, many years. And so we signed on to a letter to all members of Congress to extend the program. And this was in conjunction with Vietnam Veterans of America, Veterans for American Ideals, and others. Right. And because, and what am I trying to say here? That, like you said, they face risks day to day. They risk their lives. Like, and it's not just interpreters. It's people like, again, I remember when I was in Iraq, we would have local nationals come on post. They would run shops on post. They would help us. Like, when we, we, I was a tanker. We used to have, when I was at one place, we actually had local nationals coming down and help us tear down the old track. We would take off our tanks when we replaced the tracks on them. And that, that was what they got paid to do. And it was a way to sort of incentivize people to say, hey, we're not bad guys here were the good guys but like you said the expectation is that we will be there to support them now in the past you said there have been 20 30 2500 25000 of these over the past couple of years um what is IAVA doing i noticed you signed a you have a letter here that you signed what does that letter say so the letter basically lays out what i just said you know that this is 
so important to our allies on the ground, but also to our military, to our readiness, to our national security, that this is something that has bipartisan, bicameral support, um, and that should be continued and needs to be. Um, and we call to action on members of Congress to ensure that this um, special immigrant visa program continues on into fiscal year 2019 and specifically state that this opportunity is coming up in the appropriations bills. All right. Well, we'll have to keep an eye on that. Now, as you mentioned, it's coming up the end of the fiscal year. It's coming up to the end of the year, actually. it's. I think Saturday was the first day of autumn. And me personally, I'm saying, thank God. I'm so over the heat. I want it to get cold again. I want to wear nice, comfy jackets and everything. But IAVA has something more important, your Storm the Hill event. What can you tell us about that? We do. I'm so excited for this. Um, it is my favorite week of the quarter. So every quarter we do a Storm the Hill, which means... Our members uh, from across the nation come to D.C. and we do just that. We storm the hill. We go up to Congress. We go. We have meetings with administration officials and we talk about IAVA and our big six priorities um, and what we're doing both in D.C. and out in the nation. But I think uh, the really special part is that our members get to talk about their personal experiences, almost all of whom have experiences with burn pits, almost all of whom have experience with mental health injuries or um, some relationship to suicide. Unfortunately, you know, they know someone that's died by suicide or one of their battle buddies has died by suicide. Um, and so they get to share these stories with members of Congress and administrative officials that maybe don't get to hear these stories every day. You know, it's one thing to hear it from people that you see every day or that, you know, have to do it for a living, right? We get paid to do right. it. Or I have the privilege of getting paid to do it is really what I should, what I mean. Um, but, you know, these are volunteers, they're IEVA members, they're member leaders that come in and just want to share their experience and get something done. And it's such a powerful week for us. So do you have like does as IAVA like fly people in or people come in of their own regard like like how do you decide who comes or is it anyone that wants to come can come? Yeah, so we do have a process, um, and I would encourage anyone that's listening that's an IAVA member and wants to be part of it to apply. It's Storm the Hill. Sorry, it's IAVA.org/apply. Storm the Hill. And uh, we go through that process. We, you know, talk to them. We figure out if they have the availability to come in uh, and also if their priorities align with ours, right? Because unfortunately, we can't bring in everyone that applies. We would love to. And maybe one day we can do that. Um, but so we look for our member leaders uh, that we think can speak to our priorities uh, most poignantly. And we get to bring them in. All right. Well, we'll be sure to keep track of that. And one last thing, as you mentioned, you mentioned suicide. September is Suicide Prevention Month, and it's coming to a close. What? How, how has IAVA uh, been, I guess celebrating is the wrong word, but been recognizing Suicide Prevention Month? Yeah, we have tried to recognize Suicide Prevention Month all month long um, in everything that we do, but I'd like to just call certain attention to our Rapid Response Referral Program, which um, connects veterans to the resources they need when and where they need it. And... Um, since the beginning of the year, they've actually had 24 veteran crisis line connections, which means they personally have been on the phone with a veteran and made the connection to the VCL because they're talking to them in that moment of crisis. So wow. it is hard to understate how important our RIP program is to IAVA um, and the work that they do is super impactful. So uh, if there's anyone out there that needs the RIP program or would like to learn more about it, it's IAVA.org slash RIP 
dash connect to us. Um, also, our wonderful um, RIP veteran transition manager, Patrice Sullivan, did a fantastic blog. She was actually on this show last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she shared her amazing story um, of resilience and just inspiration. Um, and she wrote a blog about it as well. So for those who maybe didn't get to listen last week, um, Patrice lost her um, significant other to suicide in uh, 2005, 2006. And so she shares that story and what she did to kind of move on with her life, but also, you know, remember Tommy and his memory and how she continues to honor that memory every day. So it is a super impactful, empowering blog. Um, I would really encourage everyone to go read it and it's IAVA.org slash blog. All right. If people want to learn more about IAVA and what they're doing to help veterans, where do they go? Uh, They go to IAVA.org or you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash IAVA.org. And we are also on Twitter at IAVA. All right, Steph Mullen from IAVA. Thanks so much for appearing on the show. Thank you for having me. All right, you've been listening to The Morning Briefing. Stay safe out there. We will see you guys back tomorrow with more fantastical morning briefing stuff. She's Steph Mullen. I'm Jake Hughes. You're awesome, and we will see you tomorrow. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.